Hello and welcome back to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. I'm just realizing now exactly what my hair is doing. So let me just do a quick little fix of that. Hey, how's it going? Um, my name is Jesse. I am your uh, your uh, host of Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. Um, tonight, I think we're going to do a, a little, um, what, I, what I sort of plan to be a smaller, episode maybe a shorter episode but you know once i do start talking um it's qu quite possible it'll end up being our most epic episode of all time but i'm i'm planning on it being um a little bit shorter um work stuff has become uh, much busier so uh we're we're getting towards the end of my uh school term so uh, uh, a lot of a lot of work is coming in there, so I thought I would just put together a kind of a fun uh, discussion tonight, rather than a kind of long form analysis that I that I normally do, where I talk about ten movies um, that I think uh, would be while they are on my favorite movie list that I have been compiling over the last couple of years. Um, that list is now up to 245 movies, and you'll see that list a little bit uh, later on. And um, and a lot of the movies on that list are kind of movies that you would expect to be on a, a favorite movies list if you are kind of a fan of 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 film and uh, if you're a, a cinephile if i may be so bold and use that term i don't want to accuse anybody out there of being a cinephile but i know that there are some and we're going to find you but um but nevertheless uh i uh I, I i do have a lot of those conventional sort of movies on the list but i do have movies as well on the list that are um I'm not going to say that they're, as I say in sort of the description somewhere, somewhere down there, that um, that they are um, obscure movies. I don't think some of them might be a little bit obscure, but for the most part, I would say that they're not obscure. They're also not movies considered to be bad, I don't think. But as uh, you know, if you've watched a few of my videos, I, I have a kind of an obsession with lists. I like making lists and I like looking at lists. I like looking at other people's lists. And the following movies that I'm going to talk about are 10 movies that I typically don't see on great movie lists, whether it's that kind of um, conventional sort of American Film Institute list, that the one that almost always invariably the top five are going to be Casablanca, Citizen Kane, The Godfather, uh, uh, Gone with the Wind, and Some Like It Hot or something like that. Like those would be your kind of conventional, some kind of permutation of that. Um, or um, maybe a more um, a more serious like sight and sound um, poll or something like that, which <clears throat> would contain more um, foreign cinema uh, uh, or sort of non-English language cinema, which there's a lot of examples of that uh, on my list. Um, uh, there's not as many tonight. There's a few of those, a couple, but um, not not too many of them. The less, uh, yeah. So it, it, it's it, they're not movies that are typically on that list either. Um, I don't think I've seen any of them on that. Um, also, like um, Roger Ebert's great movie list. Um, which is something like 350 movies or something like that. Um, they're not on that list uh, either. So, 
Yeah, so they're not uh, and uh, these ten are not typically found on those uh, lists. Um, and um, but yeah, but I there are movies that I really like a lot um, and would be on my favorite movie list. So uh, in order to really get into them, I am going to um, share with you the list that I have uh, up as a private list on Letterboxd. So you'll be able to get some insight into that list here. I've shown it before, but you'll probably be seeing more of it tonight. Um, and I think I'm going to go through the list in chronological order. I'm not going to talk about them uh, in great length. I'll kind of just go over them sort of uh, as quickly as I as I can possibly go over them, um, and um, uh, and then hopefully my hope is that someday I will be able to do a kind of longer form video on all of these movies. Um, but the first one, and here I'm going to bring this up. So here's the list. The first one is uh, is actually. Uh, a, a movie that I have done a long form video of. It's the only one in my list that I have done a long form video of. And it's this, I am a fugitive from a, from a chain gang. So it's a 1932 film uh, directed by uh, Mervyn Leroy. Uh, it stars Paul Muni. Um, and it's uh, basically about this guy's, the description here says, uh, World War I veterans dreams of becoming a master architect evaporate in the cold light of economic realities. Things get worse when he's falsely convicted of a crime and sent to work on a chain gang. So uh, again, I, I have a video on this. You can go through my list and find the video I did on I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. It's actually, I think, one of the more most popular videos that I have. Uh, I think largely because a lot of people click on it thinking that they're going to see the movie, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and then get bitterly disappointed to find that it's mostly just me talking about it for an hour and a half. But hey, whatever gets the puck in the net, you know what I'm saying? So um, <clears throat> this movie is, uh, again, a, a one of many movies, I think, from the 1930s, and I talked about this in the video, that was really addressed with with really addressed the issue of sort of social ills and the kind of poverty that was um, rampant as a result of the Great Depression. And a lot of these movies, I said, uh, made a very strong social critique in a way that you didn't find, I'm not saying you didn't find them at all, but you didn't find as many movies um, doing that in sort of the post-2008 financial crisis era. Um, but this movie really does kind of demonstrate in a dramatic way um, the story of a guy who uh, has come back again from World War I. He's um, supposed to be a national hero to some degree, and he just becomes lost, right? He is the sort of forgotten man that you see in several other 1930s um, movies. And uh, it's, I think, anyways, it's a really well done film. The, the drama to me never seems to be cliched or, or hackneyed. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of excellent sort of uh, iconography throughout it. Um, the way it depicts um, the, uh, the experience of living on a chain gang is just is wonderfully filmed. It's just a great sort of um, filmic moment. Um, but it's also... Um, uh, the extra extraordinarily compelling drama, I think. Um, and, 
again, one of the um, one of the early movies um, that has sound. Obviously, sound gets introduced in the late 1920s. So this is a few years after that. But it, it does seem to me, at least, to be, you know, very much ahead of its time in terms of the way that it looks and the way that it feels. So it's it's I think a movie that's that's well worth checking out. I am a, I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Um, I'm going to skip ahead now to something a little bit lighter and go into the 40s. Um, and I'm going to pick this one is kind of an obscure one. And it's a Bob Hope comedy from 1947 called Where There's Life. Um, now, where I have the uh, actual uh, uh, DVD of it is uh, right here. There's actually quite a few Bob Hope movies on my list. Um, Bob Hope is, I will say, somebody who has sort of not fared well as time has gone on. Um, not for the same reasons that other people have not fared well as time has gone on, um, but mostly because I think this was true of my my parents' generation that I think they found Bob Hope to be this kind of um, cheesy relic of the past, just really unhip for, um, you know, your 1960s and 1970s audience. And the reason why is because at that time, Bob Hope was still around. You know, Bob Hope was still around when I was a kid growing up in the 80s. You know, you would see him in these awful uh, TV specials. If you have the opportunity to look for Bob Hope as dressed up as Jack Frost, on one of his uh, one of his comedy specials, um, I think it's either in the the late '80s or maybe even the early '90s. Um, it's it actually ranks up there with one of the funniest things Bob Hope ever did. Unfortunately, the least intentionally funny thing that Bob Hope ever did uh, the Jack Frost, uh, <laughs> the Jack Frost uh, sketch uh, on his on his show. Again, I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, in the 60s and 70s, Bob Hope would be this guy who would host the Oscars and do walk ons for uh, talk shows. Uh, and just make sort of unbelievably sort of corny jokes. And, hey, how you doing? And, you know, it'd be very, very kind of lame humor. And, you know, you would do those sort of um, USO tours and you would see him up there with the golf club. And you can see why a lot of people would kind of have the impression that Bob Hope was this sort of lame relic of the past, you know, of an earlier time when, let's say, things were less funny. But as you, as you will know from things that I uh, have talked about on, on this, on, on Jay Hutch talks too much before. Um, I, I do like a lot of uh, old comedy. I had my cousin Daniel on uh, the other week talking about duck soup, which is a early 1930s comedy, which I think is hilarious. Um, but I also have on my list, a lot of Bob Hope movies where there's life is not the only Bob Hope movie, but I think, you know, when push comes to shove, I might call it, my favorite Bob Hope movie. And as you can see here, I've given it the full five stars. That's the full Monty right there. No, wait, that is not the full Monty. The full Monty is something else. But um, but I give it the full five stars. Uh, and I, I do have it on DVD. It, it's paired up with a movie called Monsieur Beaucaire, which um, 
I do think that I don't think any Bob Hope movies would make a, a greatest movie list, anybody's greatest movie list, I don't think. But I do think that if one were to make it, it would either be the on the it would either be the road movies that he does with Bing Crosby, which are fine, but again, to me, not where you'll find Bob Hope's best work. Bob Hope's best work is is in, in my opinion, in my own humble opinion, um, starring vehicles for him, where he plays this kind of, you know, spineless, cowardly figure who's often portraying himself as somebody with a great deal of courage and a great romantic. But when push comes to shove, he's spineless and is not crafty enough usually to 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 um, do well in a relationship and is in many ways, I think, a kind of good precursor to the sort of Woody Allen movies that are made in the early 1970s, um, like Bananas and Play It Again, Sam, uh, and movies like that. Uh, you'll see a lot of these early Bob Hope movies in those. And you'll also see a lot of Bob Hope, this character from this from a movie like Where There's Life, you'll see a lot of this character in Conan O'Brien in the way that Conan O'Brien would construct his own late night persona is very much indebted to um, to this Bob Hope character that you're seeing here. So it do, does seem to me that if you were the kind of person who did find something like Conan O'Brien really funny, that you would, I would think on some level, at least, that you would find uh, Bob Hope's movies funny as well. Um, and uh, again, Monsieur Beaucaire uh, is often the one that's named as um, the best Bob Hope movie that he's just the sole star of. And I would agree, uh, Monsieur Beaucaire, Monsieur Beaucaire is one of the great Bob Hope movies too. It's also on my list. Um, but I do think that Where There's Life, which is one that I I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever talk about, um, quite honestly, uh, I think is uh, is his funniest movie. Um, and if you I'm, I, I'm resistant, hesitant to read the actual um, synopsis because the synopsis doesn't matter so much. Uh, just like when I was talking about Duck Soup last week with Daniel. Um, uh, just like in those kind of uh, sort of early Woody Allen movies like Bananas, the story um, just becomes something um, to um, for the for the the character to uh, just make a lot of funny uh, quips. Uh, just to see it's the character is always the same, no matter what situation uh, they have been placed in. So this the 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 synopsis here is in a far off country, their king is critically wounded after an assassination attempt. And the only the only heir is a timid New York radio personality played by Bob Hope. After reluctantly traveling to his father's homeland, Michael is not happy. That's the Bob Hope character. Michael is not happy that he's become the target of the same terrorist organization that attacked the king. So right away, to me, it kind of sounds like it has that sort of bananas um, feel to it. So yeah, so that is that is uh, where there is where there's life by Bob Hope. So that's my uh, second choice. Now I'm gonna go back a little bit and um, just a few uh, steps above that to this movie here called The Stranger. Um, so The Stranger is an Orson Welles movie. Um, now Orson Welles, of course, is one of the most beloved um, filmmakers of all time. 
uh, of course, made the movie that a lot of people will say is the great, greatest film of all time, which is Citizen Kane. And here, I'm just going to take a quick little drink of tea. Um, and I would agree with that. Citizen Kane is, or is for me, in my opinion, his best movie as well. Um, I do like almost all of uh, Orson Welles's movies. Um, this one I do like a lot, and it's often one that's not particularly highly regarded. Um, it it's um, if people will name a great Orson Welles movie that's not uh, Citizen Kane. Their, their usual go-to is either going to be Touch of Evil or The Magnificent Ambersons or The Lady from Shanghai or um, maybe Chimes at Midnight, um, but almost never is it The Stranger. And one of the reasons, I think, is because The Stranger was Orson Welles, was a compromise movie for Orson Welles. Orson Welles, throughout his entire life, uh, as a as a throughout his entire professional life, uh, always had to was was always under a great deal of pressure from uh, the studio system, who really did not have any faith in him as a filmmaker, which is really ludicrous to me uh, when you think about it. Because once again, made Citizen Kane one of the all time towering achievements of of cinema. So you know, in a movie like, for example, The Magnificent Ambersons. Um, the studio uh, uh, recuts it, uh, adds on um, uh, another ending that I don't think he necessarily approved of. With The Stranger, I think, which comes out a few years after that, uh, he's, I, from what I can recall, he's under just constant attention from the studios uh, who are, you know, really constraining him in terms of what he can do. So I think that a lot of people look at The Stranger and see that it's not really an authentic Orson Welles movie. And that might be true, but in my opinion, it's still a great movie. It's still a really entertaining and engaging film. Um, again, very brief synopsis given here by Letterboxd. A man working for the War Crimes Commission suspects that an important Nazi official has folded himself into a quaint Connecticut town. Uh, the person that, uh, that's Edward G. Robinson, who suspects that Orson Welles is the Nazi who has folded himself into this into this town. And I think, again, it's, it, it's just an extraordinarily entertaining movie from beginning to end. And I also think... There are a lot of classic sort of experimental, wonky Orson Welles shots, um, just in terms of the way that he frames the scene. Um, I think it's a, a really exciting movie just to look at visually. Um, in the same way that Citizen Kane is, in the same way that The Magnificent Ambersons is. Um, and in the same way that a lot of the lady from Shanghai is just a really kind of exciting movie to to look at. And and maybe one of the most entertaining stories that uh, Orson Welles told as, as a filmmaker. So um, I, I do really love this one. As I say, it's often not um, considered to be one of Welles's best, but it is it is one that I I have always liked a lot. And I I wanted to 
leave this to the third one because my fourth choice is is sort of similar in that respect. And that is this movie here called I Live in Fear, which is a movie by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Kurosawa is probably in my top three favorite filmmakers, um, made some of my, my most favorite movies ever. I wouldn't say that I Live in Fear is right up there at the top with my most favorite Kurosawa films, which would be uh, Ikiru, um, uh, Throne of Blood, um, Rashomon, High and Low, um, um, and movies like that, uh, you know. But uh, so I would put movies like that ahead of I Live in Fear, but I, I still think I Live in Fear is a phenomenal movie and it's made right in his kind of that golden era. This movie comes in between Seven Samurai, which is, is another master work, and Throne of Blood, which is his adaptation of Macbeth. So it comes right in between, well, sort of right in between those movies. There might be an, another movie in between them, but but uh, but I Live in Fear comes right in that great Kurosawa period. Um, and it's one that's very rarely talked about. It's very rarely um, positioned as a great Kurosawa film. And if you look at lists of you know, people ranking Akira Kurosawa movies, I Live in Fear um, comes pretty, you know, it's not right at the bottom because usually the ones at the bottom are his sort of pre, you know, pre-Rashomon um, or pre-Stray Dog movies, I guess. Um, and, uh, but it's it comes pretty close to, to the bottom of those lists, I would say. Uh, and I think it's a, a fantastic movie, and I think maybe it's because the the story is is uh, so specific. Um, Kurosawa was, of course, a, a master when it came to telling really big, grand stories that would be told on a on a large scale. Um, but I Live in Fear is a very small story um, about specifically about a man who is um, is constantly just is suffering from a tremendous amount of anxiety because he's worried that there's going to be a nuclear war at any moment. And he wants to, and of course, remember how significant this is. This is coming. Um, this movie is, is released uh, 10 years after the nuclear bombs are dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, um, and so uh, in many ways, a lot of Kurosawa's movies are sort of subtle uh, reactions to that, like Stray Dog, for example, um, is such an anxiety-ridden movie, really about a man who, a detective who loses his gun. But, but again, I, I, I think in some ways that when Kurosawa is dealing, he's not just dealing with the anxiety of this man, he's dealing with the anxiety of an entire generation of people who are living in the aftermath of this uh, atrocity that occurred uh, in their, in their, on their land. And so, um, and, and, but this movie is unsubtle in its, in its discussion of that, of that topic. And um, and the man is desperate to leave 
Japan and he wants to move to Brazil. Um, and as it says here in the description, his family decides to have him ruled incompetent. Um, and Dr. Harada, a domestic court counselor, attempts to arbitrate. I don't really know if that information is all that necessary in the description, but um, but it's it's a again a very gut wrenching movie. It's not gut wrenching, I don't think, in the sense that it's hard to watch. Really, at least it wasn't for me. There are some movies that just leave me with a bit of a sick feeling, and, and this one didn't. But I can certainly sympathize with the anxiety uh, that this man is experiencing. And maybe, you know, for reasons I won't get into right now, but maybe this this movie is more relevant than ever. And I think that, again, Kurosawa is tackling it pretty delicately. You know, I don't want to say subtly, but delicately. Um, because you certainly also feel for this man's children who... Um, who don't want to leave and who who are very concerned about the well-being the mental well-being of their of their father um so it's it's you know a multifaceted story um it's complicated it's complex it's dealing with a, uh, i think a very sp specific topic that would have been very significant during kurosawa's time but still strikes me as being very relevant uh, today. And, um, and although, again, although I live in fear is a frequently overlooked Kurosawa movie, um, I do consider it to be up there with, uh, if it's not his best, but it's, it's among his best movies, I would say. Um, so, uh, certainly well worth checking out. Uh, okay. So the next movie that I am going to talk about is uh, from the sixties. And it's a movie called, uh, it's a British movie called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, uh, which is a movie that's directed by um, Tony Richardson. Uh, Tony Richardson was uh, part of the sort of English New Wave uh, movement. Um, so again, for those of you who uh, are unfamiliar with this, this term, um, Really, that term new wave is kind of more associated with uh, the French new wave, uh, which I'll talk about in, in just a moment. Um, but uh, you have the, the French new wave movement, which is over uh, overturning French cinema um, to, uh, to a significant degree, uh, altering the kind of movies that uh, French, French, uh, France is making. Um, and the same movement is going on in England at the time uh, in the uh, late 50s, early 1960s. Um, Tony Richardson is one of the major filmmakers uh, of that movement. Um, a big aspect of uh, the British New Wave is what's, what was called kitchen sink realism. Uh, and ki kitchen sink realism was um, concerned with obviously portraying the actual real lives of ordinary people living in England without the kind of gloss that had appeared on in uh, the movies before that. Um, there was no artificial drama. Um, the, the characters were not typed. They were real people, um, often working class people. Um, and this is a movie actually that I uh, watched in university. I took a class on sort of British uh, film and history. 
And uh, this was one of the movies that was shown. And it was the one that I loved the most of all the movies that were shown. And, and this really is, although, although in some cases, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say that all the movies that I am, well, in fact, very few of the movies that I'm naming would end up in my absolute top tier of films. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm a fugitive from a chain gang where there's danger or I live in fear would end up in my absolute top movies, although they do end up in my top 245. Um, this one would. The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, I think, is a really wonderfully made movie. Um, all the emotions in it, to me, strike me as being very well-earned. It's uh, it's hyper... Uh, well, it's it's artistic and it's creative, but also realistic. Um, I, just to read again the, the synopsis, a rebellious youth sentenced to a reformatory for robbing a bakery rises through the ranks of the institution through his prowess as a long-distance runner. During his solitary runs, reveries of his life and times before his incarceration lead him to reevaluate his privileged, privileged status as a prized athlete. And um, the, the, the guy who plays the main character, who is Tom Courtney, um, is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic in the film. The acting is great. The story is great. The way it's told is great. Um, how it resolves itself is is fantastic um the loneliness of the long distance runner which again i never see talked about um really at all and i think i think the last i checked it's it's hardly available there's a ver there was a version of it i watched it last year um uh, on youtube uh which is actually a pretty good version um it, uh, the version i found at least was was pretty good um so if it is a if it is still available on youtube i do highly recommend you check it out because it's uh, it's for me one of the great movies uh, ever made and um, and again uh, very very much overlooked. Um, okay, so that's the loneliness of the long distance runner. The next movie that I'm going to talk about again is an example of the new wave. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, French new wave uh, cinema, particularly the early Jean Luc Godard films and um, the early Francois Truffaut films. Um, this one comes from um, more of this, um, not quite the early period of French New Wave, um, but that sort of mid-60s era when things were shaking up a little bit more. Uh, movies like uh, Masculine Feminine by Godard uh, and Pierre Lefou by Godard. Um, um, uh, movies like that. And this one is uh, a movie by uh, uh, Jacques Rivette, who... Um, again, not not really considered in quite the same way as uh, a Godard or a Truffaut or a René uh, is not typically remembered for that. Um, one of the reasons, perhaps, is that he, he may have been in some ways even more experimental than um, those filmmakers. So after he makes this movie, The Nun, which I'm going to talk about here in a second, uh, he makes a movie called Out One, I think it's called, and Out One is I think a 13 hour long movie. And I will tell you, I have not seen this movie. I, I don't know when I will be able to see this movie. Uh, that's pretty much my entire waking day right there. Um, so I am, uh, I, th that suggests that I sleep for 11 hours. So that's, that's not entirely true, but, um, but, uh, but close. Uh, I do enjoy a good, 
a good rest. Um, but, uh, but, oh, but it's still, it's, you, you have to put some time aside to watch that. Um, and he was going, he was still making relevant movies, um, into the nineties as well. Um, but, but the nun is one, I think is the only Rivette film that I have seen. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I do want to see more, probably the shorter ones. Um, but, uh, although, you know, I, out, out one is a goal. That's that's a goal in a way that you know Sallow is not a goal. But uh, out one is a goal for me to to see someday. Um, but the nun I thought was was great. It, it strikes me that you know the French New Wave doesn't happen in the same way without the French existentialist philo philosophical movement that emerges in the sort of post World War II era. Um, people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and Simone de Beauvoir and people like that. Um, that movement, which is, you know, you have books like um, The the uh, the Outsider by Camus, um, to me really kind of sets the, the tone that the uh, French New Wave uh, artists end up picking up on. And in some ways, I think they, they kind of come out of the same intellectual culture. Now, it also strikes me that that French existentialist movement does not would would not have appeared this quite the same way, were it not for the Russian literature movement of the mid to late 19th century, people like Dostoevsky and people like Tolstoy. And it seems to me that the nun is the closest that I've seen to a, a good, a really good filmic representation of the kind of story that those Russian authors would have written. Um, it's not, as far as I understand, maybe it's an adaptation, but it's not an adaptation of a Dostoevsky novel or a Tolstoy novel or anything like that. It's not that. Um, but but it, it certainly, the story uh, could have been one that one of those guys might have told. Um, and the execution of it, the way it looks, um, um, the way that this movie looks is kind of how, in some ways, I imagine a Russian uh, uh, novel looks in my head when I'm reading one. Um, so um, it's 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 um, a little bit different from a Russian literature novel because it takes maybe a, a bit of a harder stance um on uh religion than let's say a dostoevsky novel might um although maybe not so much a tolstoy uh, story um but again a, a, a very kind of interesting this this movie came under a great deal of censorship in the mid 1960s uh in the 18th century in 18th century france this is what the, i'm reading the synopsis a girl is forced against her will to take vows as a nun uh three mothers superior treat her in radically different ways, ranging from maternal concern to sadistic persecution to lesbian desire. So that is The Nun. Um, again, a, a very, uh, a, a, a extremely fascinating movie um, that is uh, really kind of, again, wonderful to, to watch all the way through. So that's The Nun. That's 1966, I think, 65, 66, 66. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead here significantly to uh, the 90s. So we're gonna skip all throughout the 70s. We're gonna skip through the 80s, which 
we all wanted to do, I think, at the time. And um, we're going to go right. Here's, there's a little nice little ad for you. We're going to go right to 1998 uh, with the movie Pleasantville, which uh, some of you will, many of you will probably remember this movie. This is, again, a movie that uh, that somebody left this in um, in uh, the basement of my apartment. And uh, may I managed to, to pick it up, although I do think I had this on DVD at another point in my life and lost somewhere along the way. But I have it back now. I hope it's in I hope it's actually in good shape. I'm not entirely sure if, if this DVD is in that eh, looks looks all right. So um, so yeah, so Pleasantville. Um, well, uh, if you had asked me in the in 1998 what my favorite movie was, period. I would have said Pleasantville. Uh, is it still my favorite movie? No. Uh, is it in my absolute top tier movies? No. But do I still think that it's a great movie? Yeah, it's still on my you know great movie list, my list of 245. Um, again, if you if you haven't seen it, uh, well, I'll read this a synopsis of it. Um, Geeky teenager David and his popular twin sister Jennifer get sucked into the black and white world of a 1950s TV sitcom called Pleasantville and find a world where everything is peachy keen all the time. Who wrote this? But when Jennifer's modern attitude disrupts Pleasantville's peaceful but boring routine, she literally brings color into its life. Um, you know, this, this movie, uh, from what I can remember, sort of came out, the timing of it, wasn't great because it came out the same year as the Truman show and the Truman show was in a lot of people's minds, a much bigger deal. I think largely because of the, the Jim Carrey uh, performance. Um, and the Truman show is a, is a fine movie, I think, but um, I always thought and still think that Pleasantville is a, is a better movie. I think that it's doing something a lot more creatively interesting. I think it's a more interesting movie to look at. Um, but I also think that what it's saying is more interesting than, than what the Truman show is saying as well. And I think it's, it's making a, a larger claim about, you know, what it, what it means to actually be an independent critical thinker. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, uh, that, that it's, that it's doing so in a, in a, in a, it's in a way that's maybe more nuanced than I think a lot of people gave it credit for at the time. Um, I do remember, um, just to reference the picture that I put up for this uh, video, um, that Siskel and Ebert loved this movie uh, at the time. I remember they were like its biggest champions. And I was always kind of happy about that because I, I, I love the movie so much. Um, but if you look at Roger Ebert's great movies list, this, this didn't make the cut. So obviously he didn't like it so much that it would make that list, but, uh, it does make my list. Cause I think it's, I do think it's, a a, a really great, uh, movie from, from the late nineties. Um, so, um, the next movie I was going to actually pick, uh, well, no. Okay. I'll, I'll talk about this one first. Um, Cradle Will Rock. So Cradle Will Rock is a movie that is uh, directed by Tim Robbins. Um, Tim Robbins, uh, you probably know him better as, a, as an actor um, from the Shawshank Redemption. 
But uh, Tim Robbins also directed a few movies in the 90s. He directed a movie called Bob Roberts, and he directed a movie called uh, Dead Man Walking with Sean Penn about um, about the death penalty and uh, Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon. Um, and this was uh, this was the, the third movie that he directed called Cradle Will Rock, which to me is is his best movie. Um, and um, and and it, I think it ended up being his last um certainly his last maybe non-documentary film uh, because I don't think it, it did particularly well. Um, and uh, it is a movie that's sort of set in that 1930s time that I was talking about uh, earlier when I was talking about I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. And I was talking about how the art in that era was in some ways more attuned to the concerns of common people. And... Um, this movie is very much about that. It's about um, these people who are trying to put on a, a musical uh, in uh, the, the theater district uh, in the States. Um, but it, because it's representing the, um, the wants and desires of the common person, uh, it comes under a lot of pressure and, and they try to, to stop it. And it's kind of about that sort of political world of the 1930s but it's not just a political movie it's also just a very entertaining movie it's kind of in some ways to me a little bit like a a, a robert altman movie um a lot of movies from that time were, were were picking up on that sort of altman-esque way of telling a story with a lot of characters and a story that kind of weaves in and out of those characters lives and sometimes they mix together so for example that same year that cradle will rock came out um paul thomas anderson made magnolia which is you know very stylistically similar to cradle will rock actually um but about a much different uh, topic um and again i do like magnolia and i i like uh, paul thomas anderson but i do prefer cradle or rock um as i say it's got that sort of uh, it, it has that big cast actually let's look at the cast here um as it's as it's listed here uh hank azaria from the simpsons fame um joan cusack john cusack both he got both cusacks for this film now that's a coup um so consider that how many movies have both cusacks in it carrie elway's um, playing John Houseman, um, uh, Philip Baker Hall, uh, Cherry Jones, Bill Murray, Vanessa Redgrave, Susan Sarandon, John Turturro, Emily Watson, Bob Balaban. Um, uh, Tenacious D is in this movie. Jack Black and Kyle Gass, Paul Giamatti um, is a kind of an amusing character in, in the movie as well. Uh, Orson Welles and John Houseman, uh, who again were uh, theater buddies, um, uh, both uh, our characters in this. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it's, I'm trying to remember who plays. Oh, it's Angus McFadden uh, who plays uh, Orson Welles. It does, it does a pretty good job of it, I would say. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Cradle Will Rock is a, a, a really phenomenal uh, late 90s movie. Um, again, it's on uh, Disney Plus, or at least it was uh, the last time I checked. So, um, definitely well worth checking out if you're if you're able to see it. Um, the next movie that I was going to choose was going to be uh, You Can Count on Me. Um, but I just so happened this morning to find out that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had made a list in recent years of his favorite movies. And uh, You Can Count on Me was on it, which 
shocked me to be honest with you i'm glad that it did because i think it is a great movie from the beginning of the of the 21st century so uh i that would have been that up until you know early this morning uh you can count on me was going to be a movie that i talked about tonight and i'm talking about it now but i'm going to skip over it and talk about this movie instead which is uh, wonder boys um which is a movie directed by curtis hansen uh, Curtis Hansen, this is his follow-up to another great movie that he made in the 90s called El Confidential, which was a, uh, his, his take on the noir. Um, such a great sort of stylistic movie from, from the late uh, 90s. Um, but Wonder Boys is his follow-up. And I have to say, again, I think that I like Wonder Boys more than L.A. Confidential. As much as I like L.A. Confidential, I think that I like, I would say that I like Wonder Boys even more. Um, Wonder Boys is, uh, this is, uh, one of two Tobey Maguire movies in my, in my list tonight. Um, but it stars Michael Douglas, uh, here to read the, the, I'll read the synopsis. He's a 50 ish English professor who hasn't had a thing published in years. Uh, not since he wrote his award-winning great American novel seven years ago. Uh, this weekend proves even worse than he can imagine as he finds himself reeling from one misadventure to another in the company of a new Wonder Boy author who's played by Tobey Maguire. I always kind of saw Wonder Boys as being a kind of uh, American version of Eight and a Half, uh, which is a Fellini movie from the early 1960s uh, about about artistic block about a writer's block and what it is that, that causes that block. Um, and uh, both of them, if memory serves are about a creative person who is reacting to his last great work and is unable to produce anything new and um, his inability to produce anything new is ultimately uh, revealing about something that's going on within him. Um, and so it is a, I think it's a, um, you know, I always like movies about the creative process. Eight and a half is you know, one of the greatest movies ever made. And um, again, one of my all time favorite movies. Um, but Wonder Boys is, is a, I don't want to say it's a retelling of that because it's, it's different in so many ways. And, and the movie is, is definitely not Fellini-esque. I do want to make that point in terms of its style. Um, but it is it is a really well-made movie uh, about an extremely interesting topic for me um, with great performances from uh, Michael Douglas and Tommy McGuire and Francis McDormand, um, who is also great in the movie. Uh, and I named my... Well, I didn't, in fact. I shouldn't take credit for that. Um but my band was named uh, after this movie from that time period. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's uh, so that's Wonder Boys. Uh, highly highly recommend Wonder Boys. Um, and I'm not going to be uh, talking about um, really anything post 2010 uh, because it's hard to know really what what will make great movie lists. Um, uh, mov movies that came out in the last 10 years. I think it's it's it, I think some things might be easy to to evaluate that way, but but who knows? Like some movies that I might say would never be on it might end up on a list in in ten years. So so I'm not going to to go beyond this last one, which I'll talk about, which is from 2007, I believe, 
which is uh, the movie I'm Not There, which is a um, Bob Dylan biopic. Um, and I have this one uh, on DVD as well. Um, is it Blu-ray or DVD? It's probably DVD. This was before my Blu-ray uh, period, um, <clears throat> before the blue period. And um, the this movie uh, came out uh, at a time when there were just so many um, uh, biopics uh, that were being released. Um, you know, there was the most famously uh, Ray and uh, Walk the Line. Um, and I'm Not There is a kind of a nice antidote to those movies because those those biopics, I, I know that there's certainly an audience for those biopics, but those biopics always, always bothered me, not only because they became so generic so quickly, um, but because it was so often an attempt to capture somebody's life in two hours. And there's no way you could ever really honestly do that. So you end up having to create a caricature of a person and say that that's who they were and present their whole life uh, in terms of moments that work to reinforce that caricature. Um, and so those movies always, always frustrated me to watch especially when they were made about people that i had a great deal of respect for like uh ray charles and like johnny cash uh and i love bob dylan as well i've talked about him before on this podcast but this movie does a very a very creative thing with with the biopic in that uh it tells the story of bob dylan um with from what i can recall six different actors um playing a character i don't think any of them maybe one of them is called bob dylan but i but if memory serves none of them are called bob dylan but they're all just kind of you could see bob dylan a little bit in these stories but it works just based on what i have said before about bob dylan if you go and look at my um, video on the odyssey Homer's Odyssey, naturally, as one does when talking about Homer's Odyssey, there's an extended conversation about Bob Dylan in that in that video. And I talk about how Bob Dylan is very purposefully uh, hard to pin down, right? He's he makes it he he has purposely created a persona that makes it impossible to truly define who he is. Um, and he's, as I say, he does that purposely. He doesn't want to be categorized. He doesn't want to be placed in a box. In fact, his whole career is resisting being placed in a box and being categorized in a particular way. And so, you know, to say that, again, a, a biopic that would do what I just said, did, did with Ray, Ray Charles and Johnny Cash, where you reduce somebody to a caricature and reduce them to the moments in their life that reinforce that caricature would be, I think, doubly offensive to somebody like Bob Dylan, who has outright gone out of his way to resist the that sort of stereotyping um, throughout his career. And this movie very actively also resists that. Um, to say that you're not just one person, you're a series of people, and part of who you are is a real is involves reality, but part of who you are also involves mythology. That's true of all of us to some degree. That we 
have a tendency of mythologizing our own life. We remember our, our life events in particular ways, in ways that kind of potentially serve us in the moment. So the movie's all about that, I think. It's all about, you know, this person who is uh, multifaceted, who is both real, who is both myth. Uh, and, um, and yeah, it demonstrates that, I think, in, in the most creative way possible. The music is, of course, amazing. Um, and uh, the performances in it are fantastic. Again, um, as it says here, Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, who is phenomenal in the movie. She, interestingly enough, the the one the one variation of Bob Dylan that's most like Bob Dylan is the one that's played by Kate Blanchett. Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Marcus Carl Franklin, Richard Gere, Heath Ledger, and Ben Wish Wishshaw Wishshaw. Um, is obviously I haven't spent too much time with Ben Wishaw, but um, but all of them uh, play Bob Dylan, um, and and this like the loneliness of the long distance runner, um, those are the two movies on my list that would belong in my absolute top tier um, films for a long time. I would say to people that this was the sort of last, in my opinion, in my opinion, the last great movie um, made. Um, that has since been uh, supplanted by other movies like, you know, Roma and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, movies like that. But those are, again, those are recent movies. I feel like in some ways they might end up making people's great movie lists. I don't know. Um, but uh, so I wouldn't include them uh, in tonight's video and for the reasons that I mentioned before. But um, but for a long time, this was uh, what I would have said was maybe the best contemporary um, film not contemporary anymore though because it's 2007 um but yeah those are my 10 picks uh and uh i i, I hope you found this uh, entertaining but i'm very eager to find out um what your 10 movies would be um 10 movies that you think are really great but wouldn't end up being in a great movie list um like the ones that that i described um i'm i'm excited to hear what your what your own particular uh, choices might be so um yeah thank you so much for watching uh I, and we will uh i have to set up my actually hold on a second let me do this the right way hey welcome back um we will see you in the next one uh take care have a great night oh and by the way if you are watching this, if you like the video, like the video, give me a like. Uh, please feel free to subscribe. Uh, uh, hit the bell for updates. Uh, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts, please feel free to uh, rate and review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, and uh, yeah, hope to see you in the next one. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.